Strangers, have you gotten a ticket for one of my live shows coming up next month? If not, what are you waiting for? A personal invitation? Well, here it is. I personally invite you to buy a ticket for my live shows in New York City, Boston, or D.C. I'll be bringing all the humor and the side-eye live as I read all about the three men who arts and crafted their way out of Alcatraz. And I want to meet you all. There will be a chance to say hi after the show, but with a VIP ticket, you'll get a chance to mingle with me and be there for the Q&A. You can find all the details on our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, but here are the dates. April 3rd at the Bell House in Brooklyn, April 20th at the Crystal Ballroom in Boston, and April 23rd at Union Stage in Washington, D.C. Come yell this fucking guy with me in real life. We've linked to all the ticket links in our show notes, but you can also find more information on the website. See you there. Is evil innate, or is it created by outside forces? When a person does something monstrous, does it mean they were always a monster? Or is their monstrous behavior the result of the world around them? Does a monstrous society breed monsters? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't know how many episodes I have started with California in the 1970s was a wild place or something like that. But today's subject requires me once again to point out just how incredibly bonkers life was for people on the West Coast and specifically California in the 1970s. I'm starting to think that hundreds of people gathering to take hallucinogens and practice free love wasn't exactly the revolution this country needed. Though admittedly, it may have been the natural response to decades of war, brutal racism, homophobia, and the promotion of extreme patriarchal capitalism. Everywhere you looked, the message was clear. The life to aspire to was one of cookie-cutter, conservative, suburban bliss. But wouldn't you know, not everyone wanted to live that way. Weird, right? Tell people they have to live in a tiny box long enough, and more than a few of them are going to start smashing that box. You know? So the free love movement came along, and it seemed like at first everyone was smoking pot and having orgies all over the place and life was good. But whether it was too much of a good thing or some bad drugs started being distributed, things in and around San Francisco, the unofficial headquarters of the hippie movement, started to turn like a bad acid trip. The orgies and weird formless dancing in fields were replaced by a spate of serial killings that terrified everyone. As I mentioned in the Zodiac episode, around this time, Californians were contending with Charles Manson and his cult of followers, the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Killer, the Golden State Killer, the Zodiac, and the Zebra Murders. As journalist Kevin Fagan put it in a 2021 San Francisco Chronicle article, quote, In the early 70s, San Francisco was awash in murder. Homicide inspectors were swamped. Each year, the city endured about 130 killings, compared to 40 or 50 today. End quote. One of the most prolific killers of the time was the so-called doodler. I hadn't even heard of the doodler before I researched the Zodiac. 
And I'm willing to bet, unless you're a hardcore true crimer, which I know a lot of you are, you hadn't heard of him either. The Doodler, in spite of sounding like a lovable character from the Muppets, was pretty prolific as serial killers go. And yet, unlike many serial killers, he didn't seem to crave attention from the media. If he really didn't want attention, then unfortunately, as we'll learn, he picked the right target. The Doodler went after a demographic that police and the media weren't that concerned about. In fact, it seems some people at the time even thought that the Doodler's victims had it coming. San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, in addition to being the beating heart of the free love movement and a hotspot for anti-war demonstrations, civil rights work, the rise of the Black Power movement, and, of course, the home of Rice Aroni, San Francisco was also home to a growing population of LGBTQ people, mostly gay men, who lived and partied in an area called the Castro. As blogger Elon Green put it, quote, the bar and bathhouses scene were jumping. Harvey Milk had just opened his camera shop. It was a pre-AIDS wonderland, end quote. And while the Castro was a mecca for queer people, it was still subject to homophobic anti-sodomy laws, as well as laws that targeted behavior that might suggest sodomy was something that took place. According to Kevin Fagan, quote, roving bands of teens routinely beat up gay people, end quote. Vice squads went around arresting people for cross-dressing, cruising, soliciting, and of course engaging in sodomy in public places, albeit mostly hidden from public view. Officers would themselves cruise through known gay hookup spots, apparently parading their boners through their jeans just to lure gay men in and then arrest them. One wonders how they came about, said boners. I'm not suggesting they fluffed each other. Not at all. Two of these officers, one ironically named William Gay, beat a man for a minor traffic violation so badly that he suffered brain damage. Neither of the officers were charged in the beating, in part because the man they beat didn't file a formal complaint, most likely because he was gay and it was, you know, illegal to be gay. In 1974, in the midst of the constant harassment by law enforcement, the gay men of the Castro suddenly had another threat to contend with. A madman who seemed to be luring innocent men to their violent deaths and getting away with it over and over again. At 1.30 a.m. on January 27, 1974, San Francisco police received a phone call from a payphone at a restroom at Ocean Beach at the end of Uloa Street. The caller said, I believe there might be a dead person on the beach across from Uwawa Street if you follow the street right down to the water. And then hung up without leaving a name. When police arrived on the scene, they found 49-year-old Gerald Earl Cavanaugh dead on the sand. The coroner's report noted 16 stab wounds, including one defensive wound on Kavanaugh's hand. The report also said he was lying in a, quote, supine position, which I had to Google and then wonder why they couldn't just say, lying face up. Life would be a lot easier for everyone if people stopped trying to be so fancy. Anyway... The motive for the murder didn't seem to be robbery, as Kavanaugh had about $21 on him and was wearing a Timex watch. Police were able to determine that Kavanaugh had been born in 1923 in Canada and that he worked in a mattress factory. And the coroner wrote that he was never married. 
turns out marital status is a mandatory section in a coroner's report in order to track mortality rates among married people. I'm no scientist, folks, but I can tell you that 100% of married people do eventually die. But the coroner is supposed to write unknown if the marital status is unknown. But according to the SF Weekly, coroners often used never married as a polite way of saying gay, which again had to be an assumption on the part of the coroner. He was probably like, well, he was found in a gay area, so obviously he was never married. To which I would reply, haven't you seen Far From Heaven? Which, of course, he hadn't, because that movie hadn't been made yet, but I think you get my point. Anyway. Apparently, police were also able to determine that Kavanaugh was Catholic. Other than that, though, very little was known about Kavanaugh for decades, which seems odd. One would think if police were able to determine the man's name, date, and country of birth and religion, if they wanted to, they probably could have tracked down the next of kin. It wasn't until SF Chronicle journalist Kevin Fagan looked into the case decades later that through genealogy records, he was able to piece together some of Kavanaugh's backstory. For whatever reason, Kavanaugh's family in Montreal didn't want to talk to reporters, which is weird. To each their own, and who knows, maybe they run a massive meth ring and can't afford to talk to reporters about anything. But if you knew someone in your family had been the victim of a serial killer, wouldn't you want to talk to reporters about it? I guess it's most likely they didn't want to answer questions about Kavanaugh's lifestyle in San Francisco, even though decades had passed. But Fagan tracked down a great-nephew who had done some of his own research, and while he was born 10 years after Kavanaugh's death and didn't know much, he guessed that because the family had been pretty Catholic and... I'm presuming he was a queer man, was trying to live... I guess what I'd imagine, a semi-private lifestyle in San Francisco. Imagine being so desperate to live authentically that you're willing to move to a place where people are beaten up, arrested, and murdered regularly just for trying to live authentically. On the one hand, you finally get to be you. On the other, you now have to constantly worry about being murdered just for being you. And if you're having trouble imagining that, go ask any black or trans person what it's like to just live every day. I mean, don't actually ask them. They have enough on their plates and do not have to educate you. But again, I think you get my point. It bears mentioning that at this time, there were at least two other murderers running around killing men in and around the Castro. Gay men were being targeted and murdered at leather bars and bathhouses, while another horrible someone was going around attacking and mutilating drag queens. It was a particularly terrifying time to be alive and gay. Though, honestly, no more terrifying than almost any other time in modern history. Five months after Gerald Kavanaugh's body was found on the beach, on June 15th, a passerby discovered another dead body in the sand, this time near Stowe Lake in Golden Gate Park. Jay Stevens had apparently been stabbed in some nearby bushes, dragged to the spot at which their body was found, and probably robbed as their pockets were empty. They had to be identified through their fingerprints, 
I'm using they, them pronouns because some reporters say Jay was a female impersonator and some say Jay was a trans woman. And if Jay was indeed the doodler's second victim, as police believe, the doodler considered Jay to be a gay man. So it's a little unclear how Jay presented in everyday life. An article in The Advocate said, quote, When Stevens first appeared on stage eight years ago, he made a sensation in San Francisco as a stunning impersonator. Over the years, however, he had moved away from the role of impersonating beautiful women and concentrated more on gay comedy, end quote. Kirk Frederick, historian and longtime assistant to drag queen Charles Pierce, told the SF Chronicle, Jay Stevens was this bright, young, I would guess in his early 20s, pretty boy. Charming kid, with makeup and hair and costumes and, you know, the the fake corsets and all that. He was a strikingly beautiful woman. For all that, though, Jay was, by all accounts, humble, modest, and quiet. Only a couple weeks after Jay's body was discovered, the body of 31-year-old German national Klaus A. Christmann was found in the same area as the previous two. Unlike the first two victims, however, Christman looked as though his assailant had tried to decapitate him. There appeared to have been more of a struggle this time, more stab wounds and more blood. Cold case detective Dan Cunningham would later tell the SF Chronicle that Detective Dave Toshi, whose name you might remember from the Zodiac episode, said it was probably the most horrific crime scene he had been to. That guy had seen a lot of crimes. He had seen a lot. Christman's daughter back in Germany told the SF Chronicle that her father had gone to the States and specifically San Francisco to achieve something better for himself and his family. Many people thought that in America, pretty much anything is possible and you can achieve much more. That's right. Christman had a daughter. In fact, Christman had a whole family back in Germany, including a wife. However, in San Francisco, Christman had last been seen at a popular gay nightclub nearby wearing flamboyant clothing and allegedly carrying a tube of makeup, leading some in the community to suspect that Christman's killer was connected to the other two stabbings. Word around the Castro was that someone out there was targeting gay men, and soon a possible clue about the killer would come into focus. As news of the strikingly similar murders of three of their own started making the rounds through the Castro, those who frequented the nightclubs began to talk about a man who was luring men by sketching them while at a nightclub and then bringing them to a hookup spot where he would murder them. To be honest, I'm not sure how or why the community put two and two together. As far as I know, there weren't any sketches of victims left behind. It may have just been the coincidence that an unfamiliar man had shown up on the scene sketching people at the same time that these killings began. It could, of course, be that people last saw each victim chatting with a man who had sketched them. It could also be that in a community in constant danger of violence, who could not expect protection of the police, people were generally on alert and looked out for each other because no one else would. Whatever the reason, the men of the area connected the dots, and there was a general consensus that the media and the police were not taking these murders seriously enough. 
about the victims in the Doodler killings, an editor at The Sentinel told CNN in 2018, quote, there was a feeling they would have given it a lot more attention if the victims had been white society women from Pacific Heights, end quote. Indeed, the media had not bothered to give this killer a name yet, nor had anyone anonymously contacted the media with their own alias, as the Zodiac killer had done. And while giving a serial killer a kitschy name seems a little garish, it does help everyone sort of gather together around an identifiable cause. It's probably harder to drum up interest in police on the hunt for whoever it is that has killed three gay men in the last year than police on the hunt for the doodler. It's an easier headline for sure, though to be fair, the doodler is such a toothless and benign name for a serial killer that one wonders if anyone would have taken it seriously anyway. But there wasn't an alias yet, and there didn't seem to be much urgency on the part of the police to stop whoever was doing this. Fortunately, a whole year passed without another victim. But then, on May 12, 1975, 32-year-old Frederick Elmer Capon was found dead at Ocean Beach with 16 stab wounds in his chest. Capon was described in the media as well-groomed, with an insanely thorough description of his flashy clothing choice. I'm not entirely sure where this information came from, and far more important than what Capon was wearing was the fact that he was, apparently, a war hero. An obituary for Capon that ran in his hometown paper, the Port Angeles Daily News in Washington State, said that Capon had saved four men in battle in Vietnam and was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal for Valor. After his discharge, Capon moved down to San Francisco and continued to serve as a nurse at St. Joseph's Hospital. After Capon's murder, the community in the Castro started to get real annoyed at police for their obvious lack of interest in a potential serial killer picking off their friends one by one. Ron Huberman, the first openly gay investigator in San Francisco's district attorney's office, would later tell The Advocate, If gay men were assaulted for being gay or robbed, the cops thought gay men had it coming to them, much as they thought women had it coming when sexual assaults happened to them. The example that I continually got from cops is, I can't believe you would just walk into a bar and take somebody home. As if straight men never did such a thing. There were certainly no openly gay police officers in San Francisco at the time. The SFPD's director of personnel, George Emil, told The Advocate in 1975 that because gay men commit felonies, quote, I guess you could say they are of bad moral character. If he is a covert homosexual, there is no question we would not hire him. This would be hilarious if it wasn't so infuriating and also just stupid. Are you trying to tell me, George, that only gay men commit felonies? You know who commits the majority of felonies? Straight men. You know why? Because there are far more straight men than there are gay men. I mean, what a blatantly insane thing to say. Also, if you think you know how to spot a covert homosexual, I've got a movie with Rock Hudson I'd like to show you. Anyway... As of Capon's death, the four killings were all being investigated by different detectives. 
The local gay community, apparently in between committing felonies, I guess, had already started connecting the murders, what with the similarities in method and the fact that all four victims were killed at popular gay hookup spots after being seen at gay nightclubs where some rando was sketching patrons. But the local cops were like, huh, you know, I just don't see the connection. Once Capon became the fourth victim, though, SFPD finally put the pieces together and assigned Rotia Guilford, San Francisco's first black homicide cop, and Earl Sanders, who would later become San Francisco's first black police chief. Now, strangers, I'm going to ask you to take a deep breath before I impart this next piece of information. (sighs) Ready? Guilford and Sanders were known in the SFPD as... The Soul Brothers. Two steps forward, one step back. You know what I mean? Guilford and Sanders had a high rate of clearing crimes and apparently had rapport with all kinds of regular everyday folk who might have information about what was going on in the seedy underbelly of San Francisco. Sanders and Guilford were also known to be very sharp dressers. No matter the time of day or night, they would show up to the scene in suits and ties. That's classy. Whereas I picked up my son from school yesterday in my pajamas. The same ones I had picked him up in the day before. Anyway. James Robbie Robinson, who had been a bartender at the bar where Jay Stevens had performed, would later tell the SF Chronicle... We were getting killed, and they said it was some guy doing sketches in the bar taking people out and stabbing them. Scared the hell out of everyone. The regular police wasn't much help, but the homicide guy, Sanders, they changed things. They paid attention. Just a few weeks after Sanders and Guilford took on the case, a fifth victim was found at Lincoln Park Golf Course, northeast of Ocean Beach. 67-year-old Swedish sailor Harold Gullberg had been stabbed to death. His body was found on June 4th, but it was clear he had been dead for quite a while due to the state of decomposition. Goldberg had sailed the world but called San Francisco home and had become a U.S. citizen in 1955. Despite being a bit older than the previous four victims, Sanders and Guilford were pretty sure Goldberg was now the fifth victim of their case. So the good news was police had finally gotten wise that a serial killer was targeting gay men. The bad news was, no one had any clue who the hell the killer was. Fortunately, whoever he was, he was starting to get cocky. So a month after killing Gullberg, the doodler met a man who everyone called the diplomat, probably because he was, indeed, a European diplomat, although other than that, his identity has been a secret, at a diner at 2 a.m., The doodler sat down next to the diplomat and asked him if he had any cocaine, to which apparently the diplomat replied by inviting the doodler up to his very fancy apartment in an upscale building nearby. Once in the apartment, the doodler asked if he could use the bathroom and then emerged holding a knife and said, you guys are all alike, which seems like a super judgy thing coming from a murderer. Like, Excuse me, dude? You're a common homophobe with rage issues. I meet five of you walking down one city block. And we're all alike? Okay. This time, though, the doodler's victim escaped death when the knife blade broke, and despite being stabbed six times, he managed to hurl the doodler to the ground. 
the doodler ran off. And then, just a week and a half later, the doodler attacked another man in the same apartment building as the diplomat on the very same floor. Somehow, he had convinced the man to let him into his apartment, upon which he tied him up and again said, you guys are all alike, and was about to stab him when the man started screaming as loud as he could. The man's screams prompted neighbors to start pounding on the walls, which is the most apt depiction of city life I have ever heard. Someone is screaming for their lives, and the neighbors are just like, shut the fuck up! It's almost as good as that moment in Coming to America when Eddie Murphy greets his neighbors. Good morning, my neighbors! Hey, fuck you! Yes! Yes! Fuck you too! This was enough to scare the doodler, and once again, he ran off. Now, look, I'm no hardened 1970s cop in a city plagued by serial killers, but doesn't it seem like... I don't know, common sense to have placed some patrol officer in the diplomat's building after the man who tried to murder him ran off mid-attack? Like, didn't they think there was a possibility the killer might return to finish the job? Do I have to do everything? And then, around the same time as these two attacks, a local and somewhat prominent actor who has never been identified had an encounter with a man whom he was about to go to bed with when a knife fell out of the man's coat, and apparently that was enough to scare the actor who ran off. This meant that now police had three eyewitnesses who could possibly identify their attempted murderer. The problem was, even if police managed to identify and catch the guy, their eyewitnesses would most likely not have testified because, remember, it was basically illegal to be gay. Testifying against this man could cost them their jobs, homes, families, possibly their freedom, or their lives. However, while these men weren't willing to come forward publicly, they were able to provide police with the one thing that eluded them this whole time, a description of the man they were trying to find. The diplomat, his neighbor, and the actor gave their descriptions of the assailant, and finally, police had something to work with. Now they knew the man they were looking for was a tall and lanky black man, between 19 and about 23 years old, wearing a black knit cap. He had a slim face with high cheekbones and wide-set eyes. SFPD released a composite sketch of the doodler to the public in October of 1975. The next month, a beat cop spotted a man who resembled the sketch and was holding something against his side under his coat as he walked down the street. The cop stopped the man and frisked him and found a sawed-off baseball bat and a knife. Jesus Christ, San Francisco in the 70s. When the cop booked the man, he found a pawn shop slip for Fred Capen's watch. Capen, you'll remember, was the doodler's fourth victim. This had to be the guy, right? wrong. Apparently, in a bizarre coincidence, Capen's apartment had been robbed sometime before he was murdered. And cops knew this guy with the sawed-off baseball bat could have picked up the watch at any street market where people often sold stolen goods. Plus, apparently this guy couldn't draw, which was kind of an important detail, though Lord knows he could have just been pretending he couldn't draw. But ultimately, it seems like he may not have been in town when the murders had taken place anyway. Then, in January 1976, police picked up a man who had been carrying a butcher knife and offering to sketch men at a gay bar. 
There isn't a lot of information available about what happened with this guy. As far as I could piece together, the three survivors of the doodler weren't willing to testify, so I think they had to let him go. The AP ran a piece with the headline, Murder Suspect Free Because Gays Silent. But I'm willing to bet the article didn't then go on to explain how decades of criminalizing and demonizing homosexuality most likely caused the murders in the first place. Or even that the gays were silent because the risk of losing everything was too great if they came forward. Anyway. There were 15 other men brought in for questioning in the Doodler case, but none of them panned out. In October of 75, a woman called in with a tip. She knew a man who matched the description. He lived in the East Bay. According to cold case detective Dan Cunningham... Approximately 10 days later, she called up again. A little upset, apparently. Agitated because she didn't think anything was getting done. This time, she provided a license plate number. And then, a week later, another tip came in when a psychiatrist's secretary called to say the psychiatrist was treating a man who said he'd committed the three Ocean Beach murders. Apparently, this patient had the same license plate that the caller had provided them. Three days after that, the psychiatrist himself called and told police that the man was wrestling with self-hate for homosexual feelings. On a scale from obviously to no shit, how surprised do you think I was by this revelation? You're correct. Apparently, this man had admitted in some way to the Ocean Beach killings. Sanders and Guilford questioned the man, and he was like, oh, yeah, no, I was confused about my sexuality, but I'm all better now. Look, I even have a girlfriend. Without naming the suspect, Guilford told the Chronicle, quote, he's having difficulty with his sexuality. He's probably ashamed of what he's doing. Homosexuality has never been accepted in the black community. The guilt he is experiencing causes him to want to erase the acts he committed, end quote. But, once again, the Doodler's three survivors wouldn't testify. And, because the patient never outright admitted to being the murderer, police had no choice but to let him go. But now, here's a thing that's going to make you want to punch a wall. Police, it seems, never put the full name of the psychiatrist in the file. Either that, or it somehow got lost over the years. So now, no one knows who he is. Cool. And so, in 1977, the Doodler case went cold. And though it seems highly likely they literally had the guy in their clutches, the whole thing was shelved. But then, in 2018, SFPD homicide cold case investigator Dan Cunningham decided to reopen the case. So many of the people who'd been around to witness the terror the Doodler rained down on the Castro were gone. In the time that passed, the HIV-AIDS epidemic had waged its own campaign of terror from the late 70s through the 90s, and thousands upon thousands of men in San Francisco fell victim to AIDS. Cunningham knew there would be precious few first-hand accounts of the doodler or his victims. Nevertheless, Cunningham, together with journalist Kevin Fagan of The Chronicle, who has taken an interest in the case and published his own podcast about it, found a possible sixth doodler victim. 
52-year-old lawyer Warren Andrews was found brutally beaten at Land's End in San Francisco in April 1975. And while Andrews was not stabbed to death, everything else about the murder fits the profile. There were apparently three pieces of evidence collected at the scene, a rock, a branch, and a handkerchief all covered in blood, which of course were sure to be a treasure trove of DNA. Except that the rock, the branch, and the handkerchief were lost to time. Because Warren was transferred to a hospital in Seattle where he died, the case was initially treated as an assault, not a murder. So if these items are somewhere in evidence, they're in among about 80 bajillion other files yet to be found. Cunningham believes there may have been as many as 14 total doodler victims, not only in Northern California, but possibly in other states as well. As of now, there still isn't a suspect in the Doodler case. But Cunningham believes he has found a person of interest. When questioned in 2018, of course this man denied being the Doodler and denied ever going to a single gay bar. I mean, I deny that I've ever been to a male strip show, but that doesn't mean I haven't absolutely been to a male strip show. More than once. Whoever he was, the Doodler's murders were made possible by apathy and fear, and hate. Not just his apathy, not just his fear and hate, but the apathy, fear, and hate of an entire society that put its own moral judgments before the human rights of gay men. I'd like to say things have changed since the Doodler's heyday, but hate crimes happen every day in America, and the Doodler is still at large. So I can't even convince myself, let alone lead you, stranger, to believe such a thing. Serial killer stories are usually about one madman with a dark past, a desire for attention, and an obsession. But this serial killer story is also about a lack of empathy at a social level and an unwillingness or inability to see how our own prejudices prime the pump for a rage-filled someone with a homicidal level of self-loathing and a violent need to exact punishment on anyone in whom he might see a bit of himself. Strangers, that was our last episode of season two. Can you believe it? We did it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with a whole new season filled with everything strange and unexplained in two weeks. In the meantime, if you have a topic you'd like to have covered, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, and Angela Palladino. It was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Marquise Vilson, Ryan Garcia, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Come see Strange live on tour in NYC, Boston, and D.C. Check out the website strangeandunexplainedpod.com for details and tickets. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 